Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're going to talk about African-American readings of Paul. And joining me today to do that, we have Grace Emmett, who is a PhD candidate in New Testament at King's College London. How's it going, Grace? Going well. Good to be here. And we have Grace Singalang Ng, who is a PhD student in educational studies at Biola University. How's it going, Grace? It's good. Thanks, John. And we have Reverend Daniel Parham, who is Director of Undergraduate Retention and Success and an elder at Gospel Memorial Church of God in Christ. How's it going, Daniel? It's going well. And we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Lisa Bowens, who is Associate Professor of New Testament at Princeton Theological Seminary and the author of An Apostle in Battle, Paul and Spiritual Warfare in 2 Corinthians 12, 1 to 10 in Moore Seebeck's Wundt monograph series, as well as the author of the book that we all want to discuss today, African-American Readings of Paul, Reception, Resistance, and Transformation, which came out with Erdman's in 2020. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Bowens. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So as we begin, I'm curious to know, when did you first decide to write this book and what was the research process like? There's a lot of primary sources to sift through. How did you begin going about all this? Yeah, so a couple of things happened. Um, I was working on my dissertation, which is the original version of Apostle in Battle. And one of the things I wanted to do for my dissertation was include a chapter on how African-Americans interpreted 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And so in conversation with my doctor father, he suggested, he said, well, Lisa, I really think this is a separate project. So that was one event that precipitated this book. The other event was I kept going to different conferences. And at these conferences, the story of Howard Thurman's grandmother was constantly lifted up. And it was constantly lifted up as the way African-Americans interpreted Paul. And so I started wondering if that was really true. And so the event, you know, the discussion with my doctor father and then these conferences I kept going to led me to this question, well, how have African-Americans interpreted Paul? So I decided to not just focus on 2 Corinthians 12, but just look at Paul more broadly. And so that's how this project came about, really through those two um, events, if you will. The research, as you rightly state, involves a lot of primary sources. I love history. I'm not a historian, but I love history. (laughs) So it was an interesting journey for me. It was challenging, but it was fascinating as well to look through all of these historical sources. So I start off looking at um, enslaved petitions from the 1700s. And then I work my way through in the book to the civil rights movement and end with Dr. King. My original goal, though, was to start from the 1700s and work all the way to the present. That was too much. (laughs) It was really too much. And so even, you know, narrowing it down to the civil rights movement, I ended up really leaving out a lot of interpreters and just trying to focus on certain ones. So as I did the research for this book, I just began to realize there are so many interpreters out there and so many sources that I hope, you know, this book will spur interest in looking um, further into this topic. Because even though I do cover a lot of interpreters in this monograph, there are many more, I think, that would be generative of even more conversation about how African-Americans have used Paul in their sermons and autobiographies and their essays in different um, genres. Dr. Bowens, would you tell us that story of Howard Thurman's grandmother? Yeah, sure. So I start the book off by telling the story of Howard Thurman's grandmother. Howard Thurman was a prominent civil rights activist, um, theologian, pastor. And he tells this story in his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, about his grandmother who was a slave. She was never allowed to be able to learn to read. He talks about how he would read scriptures to her. And one of the things he noticed was she was very particular about the portions of scripture that she wanted him to read. And he noticed that often 
she would not um, ask him to read from sections of Paul except for 1 Corinthians 13. Like she would want him to read things from the Gospels, Psalms, other parts of scripture. But Paul, she was very particular about. And so he tells a story about how one day he gets up the courage to ask her why. And she tells him the story about how when she was a slave, um, the slave master's minister would often preach from Paul, slaves obey your master. And she tells him she promised herself that um, if freedom ever came, she never wanted to hear that portion of scripture again. And so it's a really powerful story because it shows how um, Paul was used to justify enslavement of African-Americans and also how Paul was preached to enslaved African-Americans, right? To tell them that they were created to be slaves. And I think it gives us a glimpse, a very important glimpse of how Paul was used against African-Americans. And so I think that too is a part of the African-American Pauline hermeneutic paradigm. But I think one of the things I try to do in my book is to show that that is not the only way that Paul was understood by African-Americans. And so even though that's an important, very important part of the narrative, there are other voices that really show the complex and complicated relationship that African-Americans have had with Paul through the centuries. Dr. Bones, I think that's so powerful. I, a few years ago, I remember visiting the Smithsonian National Museum from African-American History and Culture and going through the Bible in America's section and seeing uh, a slave Bible and kind of the heart-wrenching, um, I think, anxiety that came over me thinking that this was interpretation that was given to my ancestors. Just to lead into that, like as a foil for African-American Pauline hermeneutics, could you summarize for us how white slaveholders were using scripture to uphold slavery? Sure, that's a good question. So we know from looking at these historical documents that a number of scriptures were used. I talk a little bit about, in the book about how Genesis was used, the story of Ham, right? And how that was interpreted as um, a story that legitimized um, enslavement of African-Americans. So people, slaveholders often interpreted that passage as the curse that Noah pronounces upon Ham is the curse of enslavement upon African-Americans and that they are descended from Ham. And so this curse that Noah pronounces is a curse of enslavement of African-Americans for all time. And so one of the people I talk about in the book who um, is very uh, specific in how this passage is interpreted is Josiah Priest. And he talks about this passage extensively in his own work. So we know that's one of the passages that slaveholders use. The other passage was the uh, Mark of Cain. I talk a little bit about that in the book as well, in that um, slaveholders interpreted the Mark of Cain, that the mark that God puts on Cain for killing Abel, as the mark of Black skin. And so that becomes a way to say uh, African-Americans are cursed by God and they are also um, destined for enslavement. So you have these two prominent Old Testament passages interpreted in that way. So when you get to the New Testament and you read appalling passages of slaves obey your master. So the slaveholders are not only reading Old Testament in this way, but when they get to Paul, Paul seems to really justify what they've been reading earlier in um, the Old Testament. And so when Paul says, slaves obey your master, as, um, as we see in the Howard Thurman, um, his grandmother's story, that that text was often preached as well to show that African-Americans were um, destined and created by God for enslavement. So you see there's this, um, this pattern of interpretation in the Old Testament, as well as in the New Testament, in which uh, slaveholders use these passages to justify enslaving African-Americans. Dr. Bowens, in, in contrast to that, could you tell us a bit about how African-American full-line hermeneutics sort of emerge in their diversity? One of the things you emphasize in the book is there isn't this kind of uh, monolithic way in which Paul is read by enslaved individuals. It'd be great to hear about um, hermeneutics that kind of comes back in opposition. 
Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the things that I, it just really, I was really blown away as I was doing the research was the diversity of approaches to Paul and how, like, as you say, Grace, there really isn't one way that these interpreters approach Paul. But I find that powerful and inspiring and challenging all at the same time. And as I said earlier, this um, journey was really an investigation because I wasn't really sure what I would find. Would it be the case that um, how Howard Thurman's grandmother interpreted Paul, would that have been the way that most African-Americans interpreted him or were there other voices? So it's been an interesting journey in that there is this really diverse way of interpreting Paul, but there is, um, from my research, it shows that um, Paul was interpreted most prevalently in a positive way, which I have to say, I was like, yes, <laughs> but I was also kind of surprised too. Um, and that many African-Americans used Paul to argue for their freedom, to argue for liberation, to argue for unity. And um, they used his voice in a way to give voice to their own voices, to speak out against racism, to speak out against white supremacy, to speak out against the very ways these slaveholders were interpreting Paul. Um, so for example, we get these, I start the book off talking with these, um, talking about these enslaved petitions that were written in the 1700s before the abolitionist movement, which is incredible in itself. And in these petitions to the state government, they quote Paul to argue for their freedom in a government document, which is quite amazing. And so one of the passages they use is a passage from Galatians in which Paul says, let us bear one another's burdens, right? And they ask this question, how can um, the slaveholder uh, be bearing my burdens when in actuality he's creating them? So how are we living out this Pauline mandate to bear one another's burdens? They also use Acts 17, 26, and we see that passage quoted throughout the book, right? So it begins in the 1700s, Acts 17, 26, where Paul says, God has made of one blood all the nations of the earth. And we see that um, passage quoted in the petitions, but it becomes a common refrain, if you will, throughout the centuries in which African-Americans say, you know, since God has created us of one blood, no race is superior to the other. We are actually one family of God. We are actually unified by God's creation. So you see these very um, powerful and provocative ways of interpreting Paul, um, which begins in the 1700s, but really um, goes throughout the centuries and appears in a variety of different genres. Yeah, you mentioned the Galatians passage and this kind of uh, this theme of bearing one another's burdens. And I thought that was something I was really interested in reading the book is that I think I wondered if I was expecting there to be lots of kind of um, very exegetical sort of rebuttals of um, the kind of slavery related passages. And actually there's lots of theological creativity in terms of talking about common humanity and you talk about um, the kind of body contextual hermeneutics as well. Mm. And I wonder whether uh, there were other passages that kind of cropped up quite frequently for you that was something of a surprise um, and on kind of what that journey of discovery was like for you going through those primary sources. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So I think one of the things that repeatedly came up for me as I was doing research for this, was the way these interpreters utilized all of Paul. So like they didn't confine themselves to just the Ephesians passage or the Colossians passage. They utilized all of Paul, you know, and, you know, in modern biblical scholarship, we make these demarcations between Deuterocolibacts, um, undisputed letters. But for these interpreters, um, even Hebrews is Pauline. And so I think that understanding of Paul for them in a way gives them a freedom, if, if that makes sense, to utilize all the portions of Pauline scripture that they understand to be Pauline and to um, marshal all of Paul's voice 
to give voice to their own suffering, pain, and um, cries for liberation. One of the things that, another thing that was very interesting for me was that even though they utilize different portions of Pauline scripture, you find repeatedly that they're also engaged in the historical context of the scripture, of Paul's Pauline scripture. So there's this huge emphasis on experience, right? And you see that in the book where these interpreters have these profound supernatural encounters with God. And especially when we talk about these um, African-American women interpreters, right? They talk about how they encounter God in these um, conversion experiences and how these conversion experiences transform them. And when they receive the call to preach, to proclaim the gospel, often they're often um, experiencing again, these supernatural um, experiences with God, which empower them to proclaim the gospel in the midst of great opposition because they're experiencing opposition not only with um, because of their race, but also because of their gender. And so when you look at how they interpret Pauline scripture to marshal Paul's voice, to give voice to their own call, it's really interesting. And I think one of the surprises for me was to see how these African-American women interpreters utilize not scriptures that just talk about women, but because of their supernatural encounters with God, they could talk about when Paul says, God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the powerful. Because they have experienced this powerful God and they see themselves as vessels that God has called, they, they kind of, they see themselves as weak in terms of societal standards but they are the weak vessels that God has called in this moment in time in history. So they're able to use Pauline scripture that talks about proclamation to legitimate their own call of God to proclaim the gospel. Um, I think another uh, passage that kind of jumped out at me was, well, maybe I should say this way that is not used as often as I thought it would be was Galatians 3.28. <laughs> because, I mean, you do have a couple of interpreters who use it, but it's not used as often as I thought it would be. They're often going to other portions of scripture to talk about the equality between men and women and um, the equality of the races. Thanks, Dr. Bowens. That was really um, helpful. And um, I think it's just really powerful to hear how the um, African-American interpreters, how they um, saw the breadth and um, depth, of, depth of Paul and seeing um, just how they used um, their own experience um, in these, you know, powerful supernatural experiences in the way that they interpreted scripture. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of times in our current, like, academia, we... Um, kind of separate those things. Um, it's all just very um, like logical and we don't always necessarily um, come in with like our whole selves in the interpretive process. So um, I just wanted to ask, um, how do you think we can um, learn from that kind of interpretive process and um, utilize it in um, current academia and in our churches today? Wow, that's a great question. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think one of the things we can learn from these interpreters is that the demarcations that we set up between experience and historical context, that that demarcation, that we don't always have to adhere to that. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Because when you think about um, these interpreters, they don't shy away um, from talking about their experiences with God. They don't shy away from giving really immense detail about these experiences, what happens to them as a result of these experiences, and how these experiences really transform them. 
And in many ways, I think when you read their stories, these experiences were what, they were what empowered them to speak out, right? So this link between experience and social justice, if you will, and this link between um, experience and historical context of scripture, right? So they were, their experiences are prominent, but they're also engaging the historical context of Paul's time. Like it, it's not an either or for them. I think there's another way to think about it. So for example, when we get to the um, um, 21st century, um, I'm sorry, the 20th century, when we, when we look at um, William Seymour, and when we look at how, you know, he's the leader of the Azusa Street Revival, and at the beginning of that revival, there is this racial unity, there's this gender unity in the beginning of this revival that takes place, but then as time goes on, there's this split, right? The uh, white members of the congregation want to leave, right? They're starting these divisions. And how does Seymour go about addressing that? He utilizes the historical context of Galatians, where Peter withdraws from the Gentiles when the brothers from Jerusalem come, right? Peter starts separating himself from the Gentiles. That's an important historical context for Seymour, who uses that story to talk about what's happening in his own context, where the white members are withdrawing from the African-American members, and they're actually, in many ways, creating a division in which now some of the African-American members are kind of starting their own starting to leave the congregation as well. And so Seymour sees the historical context of Paul's time as applicable to what's happening in his own time. And in doing that, he makes these really ingenious moves, right? He depicts um, the white members of the congregation in, in the figure of Peter. They're acting like Peter, right? And the African-Americans who are following them are acting like the Jews who were following Peter, such as Barnabas. But then he also implicitly, in a way, depicts himself as Paul. We, Seymour depicts himself as Paul because he's calling them out, just as Paul says, I called Peter out and said, you are not living up to the truth of the gospel. And Seymour sees himself as like a Pauline figure, right, calling out the members in his congregation who are trying to create division. So I say all of that to say that these interpreters, while they were very much um, engaged in talking about their experience and how experience was important for them, they were also very much attuned to the historical context of these letters. And they really merged the two in so many ways, the historical context of the letter, the experience, and how all of this for them, how all of that spoke to the moment in which they were living, um, the moment in which racism, um, segregation, lynching, they used all of that to speak to the very um, hard issues of their time. What about some of the particular reading strategies that we see in addition to drawing upon experience, like you just mentioned, some uh, reading strategies that we see within African-American Pauline hermeneutics um, as it pertains to you know, a number of those really key passages in Paul that do explicitly reference slavery, perhaps many of the ones that would have been utilized by those white slaveholders. Of course, the, the classic ones that come to mind, you think of the household codes in Ephesians and Colossians, which call for slaves to obey their masters. What sort of reading strategies do we see with African-American hermeneutics? Yeah, so one of the things you see is, for example, Lemuel Haynes, he was um, the first ordained African-American. And one of the things he says in kind of rebutting, if you will, how slaveholders were interpreting 1 Corinthians, I believe it's 1 Corinthians 7, right? And so this idea that slaveholders were um, pushing 
that slavery existed in Paul's day. And so it's not necessarily a sin because it existed back then. Paine's kind of, he pushes back against that. And he says, well, just because it existed back then doesn't mean it's not sin. <laughs> and he also says, you know, um, people in every generation deviate from scripture, deviate from God's laws. So the idea that it existed in Paul's time and in Jesus's time is not a valid argument to say that slavery is okay. So you see how um, that's one of the ways um, African-Americans interpret uh, or go against the interpretations of white slaveholders because they were often saying, yeah, so slavery existed, so it's okay. So they were pushing back against that. Another way in which you see African-Americans pushing a, get back against this idea that slavery is permissible is you read Frederick Douglass and he talks about just because the Bible is used to justify slavery doesn't mean we throw away our Bibles, right? We read the Bible um, in uh, the mode of liberty. We read the Bible um, in a way of liberation. And even the way people interpreted the letter to Philemon, um, Douglas speaks out against that, right? Uh, you know, slaveholders were often using that as another passage, as another letter to justify enslavement. Um, and it was really a passage used to justify the Fugitive Slave Act. If Paul sends Onesimus back, then that means that Paul is on the side of slavery. <laughs> and then you have people like um, Frederick Douglass who speak out against that and say, when you really read that letter, Paul is not sending Onesimus back as a slave, right? And so you have, you do have African-Americans who are countering uh, white supremacist interpretations of scripture that would, in, in their eyes, that seek to try to justify enslavement and say, wait a minute, you're not reading scripture correctly. If you really look at um, the words Paul uses, if you really look at the context of scripture as a whole, you see that um, scripture is anti-slavery, it's anti-racism, it's anti-oppression. So I think Paul's own language describing himself as a slave of Christ or a slave to Christ, culturally, I, I could imagine Paul's in different hearing amongst African-Americans. I mean, how, how, would you, how would you lay that out in terms of how we should read that in, in light of uh, an African-American hermeneutic? regarding Paul? Yeah, that is a really good question. So I was, I mean, I did not find in my research, and this is not to say that it's not there, I didn't find any interpreters who took that language up, slave of Christ language. Again, there may be some out there who do that. I wasn't able to find any. Um, now, I do know like more modern African-American interpreters do take that up, right? People in academic studies now do it. But I, I wasn't able to find any of the interpreters from early on who take that up. For me, I have to say, I've always struggled with that language with Paul, that slave of Christ language. I've always struggled with that. I mean, I know what he, I think I know what he means. Can you say you know what Paul means? <laughs> like, what is he gesturing toward when he uses that language, right? This complete utter abandonment to God, right? That I'm willing to follow God at all costs. This idea that I'm no longer my own, but I am, I totally belong to God. Like, I think that's, you know, what Paul is gesturing to when he uses that language. But I've always been kind of bothered, troubled, I don't know, however you want to frank term it. And I, I, one of the reasons it's bothered me, because I thought, Paul, you know your history that your people were slaves, how is it that you can now use this language of being a slave of Christ? So I think it's, it's for him, it's a, a phrase that denotes, um, as I said, total abandonment to God, to God's will, to God's purpose, that I no longer own my life. Uh, my life belongs completely and totally to God. 
And I think you see how he um, tries to flesh that kind of language out in his letters. When Paul talks about the marks upon his body in Galatians, um, when he talks about how he's um, suffering on behalf of the gospel. So this sense that my life is no longer my own. I think you see him kind of trying to flesh that out throughout his letters. I know that for um, a number of African-American interpreters who read those passages, that it's problematic. And um, it can be very, very hard to, to read that language. Yeah, it's really interesting you've mentioned uh, Galatians 6.17 and Paul's reference to bearing the marks on his body, because that's often read through a sort of servile lens, as you say, being connected mm-hmm. with his um, slave of Christ sort of identity statement. Um, and I, I think if I remember rightly, that comes up quite a lot in your book as a sort of verse that people identify with a lot. And I wonder if you could just say more about the way in which that verse and the marks and that are used by interpreters. Yeah, so... One of the things we find when we look at these interpreters is one of the ways they identify with Paul is because Paul is a suffering figure, right? And since their own lives are filled with such suffering, they see a kinship with Paul. They see a companion um, in him. And so when he talks about the marks upon his body, and we, as we know from these enslaved narratives, how they were brutally, you know, beaten and tortured, they, their marks in many ways they see as akin to the mark that Paul bears upon his own body. You get this, I think, um, significantly pronounced in King's writings in the civil rights movement when he talks about we are offering up our bodies as a living sacrifice to God and how the civil rights workers in allowing themselves to be beaten on behalf of trying to uh, go against segregation, King kind of sees this as a way of offering their bodies to God and that the marks that they bear on their bodies are reflecting the marks that Paul bears on his body. So I think one of the things you do see in these interpreters again and again is this um, feeling that they understand Paul, because in a way, Paul understands them. So there's this kind of dialectic of of suffering, shared suffering, shared commitment to the gospel, that no matter what happens, we will remain committed to freedom and liberation. And they saw Paul as in that way as well, just as Paul was committed when he gives out his parastasis catalogs, right, of all the things that he endures. They resonate with that that many of the things that Paul endures, many of the things they endure as well. And so there is this this sense of fellowship and kinship with Paul for them. Yeah. And so how did liberative readings of Paul relate to passages about women? Yeah. So I think um, when you read these African-American women, like you read Jarena Lee, Zilpha Elah, Julia Foote, they are really amazing, powerful women. <laughs> and they refuse to be stopped no matter what. And, I, and when you look at, for example, when you look at Zilpha Elah's life, she, again, like as I said earlier, they have these uh, profound experiences with God. And she talks about her own call and her own um, conversion experience. And she preaches, she goes to the slave state to preach the gospel. Even though she's born free, she travels to the slave state to preach the gospel. And in a sense, you know, when she talks about her ministry, she describes it in Pauline terms, right? That um, she doesn't speak with eloquence, she says, but she, she preaches in demonstration of the spirit. And she talks about how um, her ministry in many ways is just continuing the ministry of Paul. And she's a fascinating woman who takes many risks when she goes, um, and I mean, in her ministry in general, but especially when she goes to the slave state and remains there. And she's preaching to slaveholders and she's preaching to African-Americans who are enslaved. And she talks about how people are coming to to see her. Like she becomes this curiosity. (laughs) Right. Who is this? Who is this black woman preaching? And 
And um, the boldness that she has, even though she is fearful, now she does talk about how she was afraid, but she says the spirit of God like empowers her that even though she's afraid, she kind of, she knows she has to do this. Like this is her call. And she talks about how her life in many ways mirrors Paul's tenacity. Just as Paul was willing to go places um, that wasn't popular, he was willing to preach this um, powerful gospel, even in the midst of opposition. She too is like that, right? And she travels. And so many of these women, they travel around the country. I mean, and they travel to different parts of the world proclaiming the gospel. And so you see that in their own travels, they are in many ways mirroring Paul's travels, right? This, this mandate to take the gospel to different parts of the world. So they see Paul as a liberating figure um, who, instead of silencing them, is someone who actually legitimates their call. And one of the ways they do that is that um, they, they have these experiences that are very similar to his, right? Um, a couple of them talk about how they also traveled to the third heaven, just as Paul did. And they heard things that they cannot repeat. So these experiences um, they show are not limited to Paul. As women, they too, God has called them too because God is also enabling them or empowering them to have similar experiences with Paul. So you see these um, heroic, heroic women, I think, who are inspirations to me because they, as I said earlier, they just refuse to be stopped. Um, Julia Foote was excommunicated from her church because she would not um, be silent. She would not um, refuse her call. And I think for women today who are in many ways, in many denominations, still facing some of the similar battles of women ordination and um, these same struggles, I think these women are so encouraging and so inspiring. At one point, um, I think it's Julia Foote who says at the end of her, yeah, at the end of her autobiography, she has this section that she says, a word to my Christian sisters. And it's a powerful section where she just encourages her fellow um, women ministers, you know, don't allow men to tell you that you are not called by God. Um, God has called you um, and you follow God's call no matter what, where that call may lead you. And so I think, yeah, these women offer us really powerful glimpses into the transformational power of the gospel and also how the spirit of God can um, lead and guide and bring strength, even in the midst of intense opposition. Uh, yeah, I was so struck reading the book and I was so encouraged to sort of read these amazing stories of these female interpreters. Um, yeah, I found it really powerful, really sort of emo emotional um, reading through their accounts. And um, mm -hmm. as you say, the sort of transformative way in which they read Paul. And was also thinking, wow, it's amazing we're having kind of the same conversations now and sometimes it feels like that's just happening in our time and, and there was something about the solidarity I guess of that happening actually kind of hundreds of years earlier that was sort of weirdly reassuring in some ways and I just wonder something you pick up on in the book is this idea of a sort of body contextual hermeneutic and I wonder how that particularly seems to figure for female interpreters uh, kind of what your thoughts are around that. Yeah so one of the things that kept appearing for me as I was doing research for this book was how African-Americans use their bodies to interpret Paul and then how Paul interpreted their bodies. So to me, it kept seeming like a dialectic in which it wasn't one or the other, but it was um, continual. And I think when you look at how African-American bodies were looked at and depicted and described by the majority culture, right? Um, slaveholders and all of those who were proponents of slavery, how black bodies were dehumanized and were seen as not human. 
right? The African-Americans were seen as not um, human. And if they were human, they were some kind of inferior, hum, uh, inferior human. And so when you read these interpreters and you see how their bodies are touched and transformed by the spirit of God, you see how they articulate that transformation to their bodies, right? And one of the ways they do that is they talk about how when they have these supernatural encounters, how those encounters affect their bodies, right? Sometimes they're going into trances. And even with these the women interpreters, they, they talk about that too, right? They're, sometimes they're in trances. Sometimes the, the power of God comes upon them in such a way that they're speaking in different tongues. They're jumping up. They are proclaiming the gospel. They start praying in the midst of a congregation. It's like the spirit of God moves their body, right? And that movement upon their bodies is not just a religious experience for them, but it's an experience that has social and political implications, right? This empowerment upon their body empowers them to speak out against the political and social um, injustices of their day. And so you have, when you think about these um, African-American women interpreters, it's an empowerment of their bodies to speak out against uh, racial injustice, but also gender injustice, right? That they were experiencing because they were women. And so it's this way of traveling to the third heaven is about for them breaking the boundaries between the natural and the supernatural, right? But it also gives them permission, if you will, um, uh, maybe that's the word to use, to talk about breaking boundaries in the social and political. So the way that they experience God and the spirit upon their bodies is also a way that empowers them to speak out against injustices. Another way to think about it, when I, in the chapter where I look at African-Americans enslaved conversion experiences, so these are accounts of, in, of enslaved people who have, again, these supernatural encounters with God in their conversion experiences. And when they talk about how after this experience, they talk about being a new creation. And they talk about how um, their hands look new and their feet look new. It's not just pietistic language for them. It's about this body that has been beaten and tortured and dehumanized how God's power comes upon them and gives them a new way to view their bodies. They are significant. They are loved by God. They can now talk about themselves as new. As, and they talk also, they use the language of, uh, we are now chosen vessels of God. They are chosen. Um, they are vessels of God. So this this um, movement upon their bodies is so significant in terms of uh, spiritual experiences, but also in terms of allowing them to see themselves as human, which was what was so denied them, right? They can see themselves as human. They see themselves as loved by God. And they see themselves as chosen by God, like given this new name right? These new names that God has given them through Christ. Dr. Bones, what, what trajectories or developments in African-American calling hermeneutics do you discern from the antebellum period of slavery to Jim Crow era and into the civil rights movement? I think one of the things you see throughout the book, throughout the interpreters from the 1700s on this tendency to interpret Paul in a liberative way, right? As we, as we talked about earlier, um, that Paul is a figure of 
liberation, a figure of equality and justice. So you see that use of Paul throughout. However, when you get into the 20th century, you do finally get this kind of pushback against Paul. And I talk about two interpreters in the book who do that, right? Howard Thurman, who we've talked about already, and Albert Clay. And I think in order to understand why they do that, you have to, in my opinion, know the history, right? And you see why there is that pushback against Paul. So I think in the um, 20th century, you finally start to get this kind of resistance, if you will, to Paul. And I think those voices are important to include because it does show the complex relationship that African-Americans have had with Paul. But you also, in the 20th century as well, get these uses of Paul in the civil rights movement to speak out against Jim Crow, to speak out against segregation. So in a sense, the way African-Americans have been using Paul before to protest slavery and racism, you see that pattern continue um, for the most part in the 20th century with the civil rights movement, this use of Paul to protest Jim Crow and segregation. But you also see, and you see this most particularly with Mason, who is now utilizing Paul to protest international um, injustice, right? Which you didn't really see that early on. It's, it's been more of a focus on Paul in the United States. But with Mason, um, you see him using Paul to critique the German Kaiser of World War I, right? So he's giving this um, African-American Pauline protest hermeneutic an international um, dimension to it. And then you also see Paul in the 20th century being used to protest lynching, right? More prominently because that, that's one of the um, outcomes of the failure of reconstruction and, and all of that you see this rise in lynching of African-Americans in um, the 20th century. And so now Paul has become a figure with people like Ida B. Robinson, um, Revity Ransom, and others who are using Paul now to protest um, lynching. And so I think you see, by and large, the same pattern of Paul being used you know, to protest racism but now Paul is being used to protest racism in these specific changes that have come about in the 20th century. Um, changes of um, lynching and Jim Crow and segregation. His, his voice is still being taken up to address context specific issues, just as he was used early on. Well, Dr. Bowens, thank you so much again um, for being with us. And um, it, yeah, it's just great hearing um, about how African-Americans um, saw the themes of liberation and unity and equality um, in Paul. Um, do you have any plans for future research um, or for future books? Yeah, so I do. I'm actually working on a volume now with a friend of mine, Dennis Edwards, on um, tentatively called Do Black Lives Matter? and um, how Christian scriptures speak to the empowerment of um, African-Americans. So we're working on that volume. It'll be a volume of collected essays. Also, I want to hopefully write a book on discipleship and kind of talk about some of what I talk about in this book, but like, because I've, you know, I've taught this course at Princeton for a few years now. And one of the things that comes up is okay, well, how do we do this practically? <laughs> like once we know all this history, and I think it's so important that we know this history, right? How do we as people of God live out the gospel's call to be faithful in terms of race and dealing with racism and, and issues of inequality? Like how do we live that out? And I think for me, from my understanding, the first part of it is you got to know your history. If you don't know your history, you're just kind of just, I don't know, reaching for something that you really can't get to until you know 
the history, the story. And so one of the things I hope this book does is give us a sense of the history so that when we're having these types of conversations, we know those stories, we know the background, and we can have a much more intelligent conversation about these issues. So I think, you know, my hope is that, you know, the book on discipleship will kind of take into account this history, but also give practical ways on how we as believers live out the call to be faithful to the gospel in the midst of issues of racism and all of that. The other thing I hope is I hope that this book spurs interest in this area of reception studies because um, there's so much that I could not cover in this book. <laughs> and it ha- I just had to come to a point where I had to say, okay, I, I've, I've got to stop. <laughs> but I hope that other people will find it interesting enough to say, oh yeah, we do need to do more research in this area because there's so many interpreters that we can learn from. And I think they have so much to teach us. Many of these issues we're not facing, it's not, they're not brand new, right? Issues of race, racism, white supremacy, it's been here. So what, how can we learn from these interpreters who've already gone before us? What can we learn from them, take and, and move at, and as we move forward? So I hope to be doing a lot of writing <laughs> in the future. <laughs> and I hope that other people will find this book interesting and challenging and inspiring and informative and that people will also be, you know, um, challenged to do research in this area as well. Mm. Well, we very much look forward to those upcoming projects that you have, and we're so grateful to have you on today. It's been really powerful to hear you bear witness to the wonderful interpreters that have preceded us, and we're grateful for your contribution to reception studies as well as to Pauline scholarship more broadly. So just thank you so much for all the great work that you've done. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate being here. Thank you. If you'd like more engagement of theology, culture, and discipleship from the two cities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. If you like the content that we put out here on the Two Cities podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.